Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Brian was primarily an orator. Clarence Darrow, in addition to be a trial lawyer, was also a great public speaker. He gave set speech. And Darrow, as the speech went on, he leaned his head back, closed his eyes, and let the words flow over him. And he leaned over to Scopes next to him and said, ah, it is a summer for the gods. And I, I imagine some of your listeners, if you say your listeners are trial lawyers, some of them know where there's a amazing trial that they're involved in, where both sides are hitting on all cylinders. And it is like a summer for the gods. And that's how it becomes at one of these trials. And this is what they felt that day. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing? I'm good, Steve. I'm good. How are you? Good. Um, I We are excited that we had a great conversation with Professor Edward Larson from Pepperdine University about Tennessee versus Scopes, the Scopes Monkey Trial. And so we are going to play, this is part two of that interview. And, and hope everyone enjoys this in-depth discussion of the uh, Scopes Monkey Trial. Let's talk about the trial. So the trial started in July of 1925. Uh, it started on July 10, my birthday, just uh, in case anybody's wondering. Um, but uh, um, it, it started on July 10. And I mean, it, so imagine this, Yvonne, and, and this is one thing that we don't think about now, but I mean, basically you're in, you're in trial in the South uh, in the middle of the summer and there's no air conditioning. Uh, and you're in a packed courtroom um, because, I mean, it was standing room only. Uh, in fact, I read uh, one of the things I think uh, you may have mentioned in your book, um, Dr. Larson, was that it was so packed that at one point the prosecution, I think, left their chairs to go you know, find a witness or something. And when they came back, their chairs had been taken by the crowd, which is, uh, you know, just funny to think about. Um, oh, by but, the way, asking for them back, they they had the wonderful line that said, um, you may not think much of lawyers, but law- lawyers are, an un- are a necessary evil in a trial. Right, right. <laughs> That's, <right. laughs> That's true. Um, well, uh, so the trial starts, I mean, so the first thing, you know, one of the things, and we'll talk about this as we go, that I thought was interesting was that, uh, as I said right at the beginning, the actual evidence that was put on was very small. And and the uh, sort of the highlights of the trial uh, in, involved a lot of motion practice. There was the the motion to quash the indictment. Then there's the motion of the defense to uh, to keep scientific evidence from being uh, uh, used, uh, you know. And then, of course, the highlight, uh, which we'll talk about, is the the cross of William Jennings Bryan. But you sort of make the point that you know that a lot of people wanted to be on this jury, but that the jury themselves missed some of the high points of the trial because they weren't allowed to sit in there when they're arguing all these motions. Missed most of them, not, not some of the trials, they missed all but two hours right. of the, of the, of the eight day trial. Um, absolutely right. What it was, was before the trial started, Brian would brag that this was, and this is his exact words. This is going to be a um, trial Royale um, testing the validity the justice, the wisdom of this law. Uh, again, both of them viewing it more as a as a way to educate the people of whether such a law was good. And he thought such a law was wise and good and the people should be able to pass it. 
So he was saying he was going to bring in all these experts and all these people to testify. And the judge, in fact, had originally proposed holding the trial instead of in the courtroom at the high school baseball field um, so that thousands could gather. And uh, because this was a public event. And so you um, so that the defense responded accordingly. And they lined up an absolutely drop-dead stellar group of experts, all of scientists and theologians. All this, they were very careful. All and the ACLU had done this from the best unit, but from Harvard, from Princeton, from Johns Hopkins, from Chicago, the top theo, the top, you know, modern theologians of the day, and top evolutionary scientists, but careful, all of them religious. All of the scientists were also Sunday school teachers. They were all Christians, active Christians in their church. So you couldn't say, oh, this is an atheist science scientist. They often had, you know, were Presbyterians or Methodists or Episcopalians, but they were all Christians. And so they had this starred stellar list of the most famous scientists and theologians of liberal theologians of the day, all of whom were going to testify that. Evolution is the accepted scientific theory for the origins of humans, and it doesn't conflict with my religion whatsoever. Right. Um, the other side, the trouble Brian had is he couldn't find any witnesses. He could not find anyone. Um, he couldn't even get the, I, we mentioned earlier, the Seventh-day Adventist and how James McGrady uh, Price, um, who was a, you know, with no degrees whatsoever, was a teacher in a, a Seventh-day Adventist school and was a creationist, he didn't. He wouldn't even come because he thought this was just going to be a shellacking. It'd be made into a, make to look crazy. And so he couldn't find anyone to testify on his side. And so suddenly he was in a situation which he was going to be, It was, the trial was going to be just an endless string of these experts. So at the trial, just before it begins, he shifts sides after all these experts had come down to Dayton and said, we are going to object to any experts because the only question for the trial, the only question for the trial is, did Scopes teach evolution? The statute speaks for itself. And then if you want to bring in all sorts of other things, do that on appeal. And the judge, as you mentioned, is a friendly judge. And he he's deflated because he wants to sit. He had already called it a summer Chautauqua. He was already going to put it in the baseball field. He was always going to be this moderator where he was going to hear the leading experts from around the world on both sides of this teaching of evolution. Hundreds of of journalists had descended on Dayton to watch it. They were all prepared for this basically debate, summer debate in the context of a trial. Well, then the prosecution moves hard to say, none of them can come in because they're not relevant to the narrow question. If they wanna say Scopes didn't teach evolution, fine. Let him off, that leaves the case open, which they can, because everyone knows, everyone knows Scopes has never taught evolution. I mean, both sides know that, but the defense doesn't want to defend on that. They want a result. Even if they lose, they want to take it up to appeal to first the Tennessee Supreme Court and then all the way to the Supreme Court. 
And um, in that respect, they've already arranged for a different team of appellate lawyers, which includes the, um, the current president of the American Bar Association, who had been a Supreme Court justice and had stepped down as a Supreme Court justice, uh, Charles Evan Hughes, to be the Republican nominee for president in um, 1916, and then later would go back on the Supreme Court as chief justice, he was going to argue the case before the Supreme Court. So they just wanted to get a judgment, even if they lost, they wanted a judgment. So the last thing they wanted to do was argue that Scopes had never taught evolution and therefore moot the whole case. Right. And so the result is they argue that we get to preserve, that our experts are relevant, but really they weren't for the narrow question. And the judge is under a lot of pressure. He's getting phone calls directly from the governor. You got to shut this thing down. And the way to shut it down was to rule all the experts out. So the result is the only testimony is going to be the prosecutor is going to bring in a few people to say he did teach evolution. Scopes can't take the stand because he can't lie and say he taught evolution when he didn't. He has to coach his own students to say, go ahead. I know I never taught it, but go ahead and say that I did. And so the students get up and say that he did. But that takes two hours. And then the, the defense, when they lose the motion to have any of their um, any of their experts testify, what can they say? There's nothing to counteract. Yeah. And in fact, Darrow ends up asking the jury to convict him so they could have something to appeal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about uh, the jury selection in the case. Um, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong. I th that you know at the time women couldn't serve on juries and only white males could serve on juries. So so essentially it was twelve white males. Um, and if I remember right, everybody in the the veneer uh, believed in creation in divine creation. Is that right? Well, we don't know exactly what they all believe, but you're right on the first points. And that was not Tennessee in general. When Tom Stewart got down there, he couldn't believe that women couldn't. Um, but it was a local practice. Not only could women not um, serve on juries, they couldn't be in the courtroom. So there were only men allowed in the courtroom um, until they moved it outside on that last day when everybody descended on the town and, and sat around on the lawn, then women could be there. And so I interviewed a lot of the survivors that were around still. And um, the women remember only seeing that last, uh, that last uh, outdoor part of the session. So yeah, there were no women. Of course, there were no blacks. They couldn't vote. They couldn't, um, in Tennessee, they certainly couldn't participate in a case. Um, that might have been true throughout Tennessee. I don't know. But in Dayton, they couldn't. And as the result was, yes, it was all white. As for the, the, the most famous of the, um, well, that's a good story because there are certainly were many people in Dayton who believed in evolution. It was not a, there was no um, evangelical church in town. It, there, were, there were Methodist churches, which were sort of moderate. There were um, more conservative churches, but there wasn't there wasn't any creationist church back then because it was a small town. It was East East Tennessee. It was really before the rise of modern fundamentalism, at least as it, it had not percolated into that area of the South yet. So, um, uh, so what you had was Darrow could have found 
uh, people who would have been open to acquitting. And that's what he did normally. He would, in these cases around the country, he would spend literally days and days on picking a jury and bring in, have advisors to try to find at least a few people who would be willing to acquit his typically notorious client for for um, milita- a murder or a militant action in labor. Um, but he didn't want to do that. He wanted to convict the statute. Well, the way you convict the statute is the argument against the statute, the way he saw it, was a bunch of legislators who knew nothing about science saying what should be taught in a science classroom. Well, the way to do that is to bring in a bunch of jurors who do nothing about, who clearly know nothing about science and have them stand in judgment of a teacher, a certified science teacher teaching science. So he wants, for public appearances, for the long-term effect, for the national impact, he wants to have a jury that look as biased and as ignorant of science as he can get. So he um, never objects to any of these people, ask them a few questions to establish that they don't know anything about evolution. So none of them knew anything about evolution or science. But the favorite one, the one that was front page news in every newspaper and makes it into Inherit the Wind with virtually no changes, is he asks this typical question of when he says, "Um, have you ever read anything about evolution? The answer was literally, nope. And then he says, I bet you read your Bible though. And his response was, nope, again. And Barrow apparently looks very puzzled and says, well, you don't read your Bible? And he says, can't read? And Brian and Darrow immediately says, he'll do, and puts him on the stand <laughs> because he's just what he wants. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, um, well, and, and then I guess I, you know, tell me if it's before or after the uh, the evidence is put on, but there's the motion to quash the indictment and um, and all of the lawyers on the defense side, I, I think, spoke at, at this. It started out with with uh, Professor Neal and then um, and then uh, uh, Mr. Hayes. Uh, but then Clarence Darrow gives his um, his, his um, rebuttal after um, after Attorney General Stewart uh, had uh, had given his portion. And, and one thing I was going to say about Stewart, and you mentioned it, which was that this case probably would have been very different if it had been left just as Stewart, is he seemed to have this sort of single-minded focus on how you try a case and putting the evidence in that's going to have you win the case probably not going to make front page news, but he's going to win his case and he's going to keep it good for appeal kind of thing. Um, but, um, but the talk about a little bit about Clarence Darrow's um, uh, rebuttal on, um, on the motion to quash the indictment, which is one of the high points of the case. And, uh, and, and I think he, he talked about it afterwards that the reason why he made such an impassioned argument was because that was in effect his closing argument because his plan all along was to not let Brian uh, do a closing argument because the defense thought that Brian would do a very effective closing argument, which he would have. Uh, but this was a way of sort of cutting him off. That's exactly right. And yes, it occurs after we've got you were you're working through this in perfect order. Um, I'll commend you on that. It's a um, it was after jury selection, but before they presented 
their evidence, they moved to strike the statute as unconstitutional. Now, they thought that would not be successful because under Tennessee jurisprudence at the time, uh, the constitutionality of the statute is normally left to the Supreme Court. They didn't have an appellate intermediate division. You go right from the trial court to the Supreme Court. And except in the most egregious cases of unconstitutionality, it wasn't for the trial court to decide that. The trial court just decided whether the law was violated or not. And then the Supreme Court was supposed to look into its constitutionality. And so they had very little chance for success, but they had decided um, as you point out, they had decided for strategic reasons not to make a closing argument. And I had mentioned earlier, Brian was, I mean, Darrow, Clarence Darrow was the master of the closing argument. That's when he would twist the jury and get his person acquitted or at least a hung jury. He would do mesmerizing. There are stories of his closing arguments, such as in Mac, uh, uh, the, the uh, McNamara case, but such as in um, Leopold and Loeb, most famously, in the in the Debs case, in, in Big Trouble, the case out of, of Idaho, where you literally had the bailiffs weeping, the bailiffs weeping, because he could tell a story. The Sweet Brothers case, which was about the blowing up, which we should do a show on that sometime. The Sweet Brothers case, these um, these this Black person had moved into a white neighborhood in Detroit and was defending his house. And it's an amazing case. Um, and Brian make, and Darrow makes the most impassioned arguments for, for civil rights that you'd ever want to hear from the 1920s. And literally the whole man's house is his castle. A person who defend his house from this riotous white people and the Klan that is trying to attack him. And literally the entire, the jury is weeping. And so um, he's good at the closing arguments. And Brian had a thought, I can't handle a case. I'm too old. I can't handle the back and forth of the case, but I'm the greatest speaker in America. And he had prepared, he had publicly announced how he had spread two months preparing one of the finest speeches of his life as the closing argument. So Darrow knew under Tennessee jurisprudence, if the defense waves its clothes, the prosecution can't give its, which is sort of fair. And um, in a criminal case. And so Darrow had already decided he was going to wave his clothes and then leave Brian speechless. Um, which was very frustrating for right. Mr. Bryan. And because uh, it wasn't, it, it was a good speech. He does give it later after the trial's over. Um, it's a beautiful speech. But um, so they crammed their, what would be their closing arguments, mostly using this as the opportunity to make their speeches. And Darrow talks about burning witches and talks about taking America, the laws like this, take America back to the, to the 17th century when we were burning, when we were lighting faggots to burn witches and all this stuff. He knows all these words have double meanings. Right. He's playing everything to the hilt. And it is a, um, sure, Dudley, may have, Dudley Field Malone may have given the best speech, but, um, but this is a very, very powerful speech. And, uh, 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 Brian, of course, doesn't really speak at this time because he's saving everything for his closing argument. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I read part of uh, of uh, uh, Darrow's uh, argument. I mean, it, it reads very much like a closing argument. And uh, but yeah, just as you said, sort of talks about, you know, taking people back in time to where they're burning books and burning you know, and, and this is the type of laws that we're passing here to uh, and, and just makes an impassioned 
argument on individual freedoms and for religious freedom and, you know, basically what the country's built on. And it's just a uh, it's a very powerful speech. Right. Darrow always knew how to speak, whatever the setting was, he knew how to speak. And that's why. Uh, for your listeners, I, I actually I'm not pushing my own books, but I do have a an edited collection of of, of Darrow's um, with the Modern Library series, um, uh, edited collection of his words and writings, and including parts of his closing speeches. And he's just amazing. Any trial lawyer today should study him. And I, uh, a guy named Jack Marshall gives wonderful CLEs. Many people give CLEs. Um, I've given some on 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 Clarence Darrow as a as a trial lawyer and what you can learn from him. You can learn a lot from because he was whether or not he was controversial, whether or not he was loved. He was the best there was. He knew how to just take a jury and just melt it into his hand. Here he was trying to melt not the jury. He was trying to reach out nationwide over the radio. Again, it was on the radio and through the printed page. Virtually every major newspaper in the country printed word for word transcripts of every day. The next day, you could read it in the New York Times. You could read it in the Cincinnati Enquirer. You could read it in the San Francisco. You could read it anywhere. They had word for word transcripts. You can still buy. They're still printed and they're still sold. Um, world's greatest court trial is the Cincinnati um, newspaper's transcript. You know, you can still get them on Amazon or wherever. Wow. You but they're they and so you can read these speeches easily. But everyone in the country, because back then you didn't, you know, people read newspapers back then. And the next day they were reading every word. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we're on a first name basis. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. 
Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. So the judge, I mean, I think he takes a day or so, but he actually, uh, he, he obviously denies their motion to quash the indictment. And as we've said, the, the prosecution's evidence that they put on, which was put on mostly by, by Attorney General Stewart, um, is is basically, you know, did he teach, did John Scopes teach evolution? And I think the, his witnesses were um, a, a the school superintendent and then um, I think two or three of, of John Scopes students. And then uh, and then I think even the um, uh, the, the the drugstore owner, uh, Robinson, uh, got up there and, and testified about that, that John Scopes, when they had talked and they had sort of come up with this plan and looked at uh, at Hunter's biology, looked at it and said, yes, if you know, I taught this book and this book teaches evolution, never mind the fact that this is the required reading for teaching biology in the state of Tennessee. But uh, if you taught the required reading, then you were teaching evolution. And that was essentially that was essentially their case. That was it. And that that's and again, the, the the students had been coached in the car outside by scopes. Go ahead and say I did it. Um, don't worry, even though they liked him. Uh, of course, as you know, the, the most famous thing that comes out is not the prosecutions questioning him. But when uh, the young boy Morgan, I think it was Tommy Morgan, he, he, he after he testified, um, Clarence Darrow famously gets up and it's sort of captured pretty well in Inherit the Wind. But if you read the transcript, it's even better than Inherit the Wind. He says, hmm, hmm. So he taught you evolution, did he? He says, yeah. He says, oh, hmm. You're a baseball player, right? And he says, yeah, I'm on the high school team. Hmm. How you doing? And he says, I'm, I'm, are you a righty or a lefty? And he says something. He says, pitching still going good? He says, yeah. He says, not teaching evolution didn't hurt your pitching. Says no. Still love your mother and your father. <laughs> yes, yeah, I still love my mother and my. So evolution didn't hurt you. <laughs> and so it's really a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> Wow. Um, yeah, it, it, some of the other, I think, funny stories that come out of that, or at least, the, you know, you think about them nowadays, you know, when you try cases, is that uh, on one particularly hot day, I think there was a break. And so John Scopes, the defendant and William Jennings, Bryan Jr. Sneak right. off to like a, a, a spring or something and go for a swim. And then are actually late getting back to the courtroom because, you know, they had been swimming. But it, it, but just, you know, you never think about the defendant and the prosecution uh, going for a swim right. just to cool off in the middle of the summer it, day. It, <laughs> it was beastly hot. It was record temperature. There was not even not only was there not a air conditioner, there wasn't even a fan in the courtroom. Um, Dudley Field Malone finally 
buys a floor fan and puts it in the courtroom and gives it to the court. Um, but um, there, at that lunch, they had a lunch break. And uh, Scopes knows about a local swimming hole that's up in the hills of spring, a little pool. And so he and uh, and Billy Bryan, William Jennings Bryan, go up and they're both chain smokers. Um, and so I'm sure they were just sitting up there floating, smoking away because both of them were. Brian, the only person I know that didn't smoke of the whole group was was um, William Jennings Bryan himself. But um, so they are probably up there lying in the pool, smoking one cigar, the other cigarettes. Uh, and um, then showed up late and <laughs> got a got a um, got a harsh word from the judge for coming back late to the trial. <laughs> well, um, one ahead. of the things well, it just makes me think thinking about the swimming hole makes me think of one of the things that I was thinking about reading about it and looking at um, where Dayton was on a map because I had never heard of it and I um, grew up in Tennessee. Um was like where did the pe- where did these people stay? Where- oh, that's yeah. a good question. Um, there were a couple smallish hotels um, in town. the The town is halfway between. Uh, uh, now it's a little bit of a suburb. People commute in from there to uh, uh, Chattanooga, um, but it's sort of halfway between Chattanooga and Knoxville. Mm-hmm. Um, along the um, uh, Watts Bar is very close. Um, where a lot of people go fishing. Um, it's right there on the Tennessee River there. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it turned out is that most of the townspeople rented out their houses um, because people needed places to stay and they could make a little extra cash. cash. So both Darrow and Brian rented each rented um, a house. Um, Brian stayed in uh, the druggist uh, Rogers house. Um, and um, then there were some old buildings. They put the witnesses, the expert witnesses were all up in a house that had been closed, known as the mansion, but it was vacated, which they took over and sort of cleaned up. Um, some people in town thought it was haunted already. <laughs> it was old, and, it's, um, and so they all stayed there. So you sort of had places around the... Um, Cordell Hall, who was at that time a would later become Secretary of War, I think, for Roosevelt, but was um, the congressman from there, arranged for the army to bring in um, mm, trailers that people could stay in and also uh, uh, portable latrines um, were brought in. Uh, and the, the hotels were overly full. Right. But a lot of people rented out their homes and left town and tried and cashed in. Gotcha. Wow. Same kind of thing that would happen now, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> an early version of Airbnb. Right. <laughs> well, like and, a, sort of like a music festival coming to town. But uh. exactly. <laughs> that, I mean, that, and, and if you went to the town square, it was very much like it. The main street had they had um, exhibits. They had bookstores. I mean, you know, outside stands, they roasted ox, roasted ox on the courthouse lawn. They had um, they had, you know, exhibits where you would throw, you know, like like um, um, uh, uh, QB dolls and knocking down uh, um, carnival. Yeah. Carnival barkers were there. Um, they people brought in trained monkeys so you could get pictures with trained monkeys. Um, it was it was a festival. It literally yeah. was a festival. 
Wow. One of the signs that I thought was funny from the whole thing, I saw a picture was a picture of uh, Robinson's drugstore where the initial plan came together and he had changed his sign to say Robinson's drugstore where it all started. I thought, you know, he's and just- indeed, <laughs> if you go to Dayton today, Dayton is still making money on this trial every summer. They reenacted every summer. Oh, that's great. in a very, very pro Brian approach. <laughs> right. It's a highly edited approach. But they can they have the Scopes Trial Museum where they basically recreated part of Robinson's drugstore. When I first went there doing work, doing work on the book, Robinson's drugstore was still open. But it's closed now mm. and they've moved it in. So they have uh, recreated in the basement of the courthouse. The courthouse itself is still there. It's just by chance. It's a beautiful courthouse. It's just by chance. Um, the largest um, was the largest. Courthouse trial level, county level courthouse in the state, because when they originally built the town, they thought it was going to grow. Yeah. Um, now they no longer as of. The last time I was there, they no longer use it. They now built a new courtroom. But when I was going there, they were still having um, trials in that courtroom, and they still stage the um, they still stage the reenactment there. So you can still see it. Um, and they have a statue of both Brian and Darrow out on the courthouse lawn. That's wow. great. That's great. We got to go see uh, one of those reenactments. That'd that be would be so cool to just have yeah. like your pre-trial hearing or something in that courtroom. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and it it reminds me, you know, when you say that Dayton had this big, beautiful courthouse, it's something you see if you practice law in the South a lot, um, which is these small, uh, you know, uh, rural towns that just have these big, beautiful, amazing courthouses. And uh, it's just and I, I don't think uh, I don't think it's like that up north or in, in, in other parts of the country. I mean, it's it's something peculiar to the south. But you just see these. They're usually the center of town. They're usually beautiful courthouses and, and big courthouses, um, but for very small towns. And, and like those, I should add, typical of the south, the courtroom is the entire top floor. So right. which is you see throughout the south. So down on the first floor, you'll have the recorder's office, the auditor's office, you know, things like that on the on the first floor. You have a basement floor. Then you walk up into the first floor and you have all these. And then you go upstairs and the entire top floor is the courtroom with just little rooms on the side for the judge and for the jury to meet. But it's basically the entire top floor. This is standard. And this is a classic example of that. It's a beautiful, beautiful courtroom. Yeah. Well, um, after the the uh, prosecution put on their case, there was uh, the defense was able to put on one scientist, uh, and that was Dr. Maynard Metcalf from uh, from uh, Johns Hopkins. He was a zoologist, and essentially, what his testimony was about was the fact that he was a Christian and that he was a um, <clears throat> was in the evolutionary theory was accepted among the scientific um, community, and that um, it didn't. It basically, that it didn't mean that there wasn't divine creation. Um, well, go ahead. Sorry. One thing, it, he wasn't really put on in that sense. Um, the judge had already ruled. They made the motion of after the uh, they made the, there was the first motion of Qualsh. And then there was another major motion of expert witnesses. And the judge had ruled the other way. Um, but the the uh, prosec- the defense made this case that we brought in these people. We thought. They're quoting Brian. They say this is going to be a battle royal. Um, they're going to bring in extras. We brought these in from great expense from all over the country. So what the judge allows him to do, and, and he said, 
Well, I will. You may make affidavits from all of your witnesses and those I will accept to submit for review. Affidavits, no, no cross-examination, affidavits. And they said, but we'd like him to present him in open court. And as a compromise, he said, I will let you depose or create an affidavit. One, you can choose any one of your eight witnesses and you can put him on the stand. But this he will not. He's not a witness in the sense that there's not going to be any cross-examination. You can just ask him your questions as if you were deposing him. We'll have a, the court record and that will be submitted along with the affidavits of the others. So it was an unusual. It wasn't like he was a witness. He was creating an affidavit. And of course, this is so boring because you don't have the other side involved, engaged whatsoever. They're not even there. Um that they quickly wrap it up. And so they even do a truncated list of the questions and um, then expand his statement for submission afterwards because really the judge had figured out he, he, he could sound somewhat magnanimous by letting him do it in open court for one of them. But it, it wasn't as if he was being put on as a witness. Right. Yeah. And then uh, so I guess the when they have the motion, uh, the the uh, prosecution's motion to exclude the scientific expert evidence that um, I mean, they, so that's two of the sort of uh, high points of the trial or famous parts of the trial, because uh, William Jennings Bryan argued for the prosecution and made a an impassioned speech uh, against teaching evolution uh, and then followed up by uh, Dudley Fields Malone speech um, where he uh, really just makes a, a great case on why, um, you know, you should listen to the evolutionary evidence and how you shouldn't take a, take away, you know, sort of their one part of um, their, their one uh tool that they have to defend this case. And I, and I really thought just, and this goes back to what I was saying before, as, as a legal point, and just on the legal point, the way that the statute is written with the word and, which is that the, that you can't teach anything that denies cre uh, divine creation of man in the Bible and uh, uh, instead teach man, man is descended from lower uh, order of animal. I thought it was a great point that, that, he he that they they would put on evidence that shows that they weren't uh, disputing divine creation, which means they were teaching within the statute. Yeah, that's why they picked them. That was their approach. I agree. But if you if the judge is on the other side, <laughs> it still right. doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then and the story, I think, about that day was that um, that. Um, uh, I think um, William Jennings Bryan gave a brilliant speech. Everybody, you know, uh, was very loudly applauding. But then after Dudley Fields Malone gave his speech that everybody stood and applauded. And and uh, I think there's even a, um, a, a story of a, uh, a a policeman who's banging his um, his baton on the table and they think he's trying to get order in the court, but he's just banging it because he's cheering for Dudley Fields Malone and uh, and I think even, and correct me if I'm wrong, I thought I read that where John Butler, the author of the bill, was there as a as a correspondent for one of the newspapers. Even he said that that was one of the great speeches, was uh, the speech that was given by Mr. Malone. Well, absolutely. And William Jennings Bryan actually told Dudley, that was the best speech I ever heard. Uh, <laughs> so Bryan knew a good speech when he heard it. And in fact, that's where the title of my book comes um, it's after it's 
the speech is so well constructed and and both Brian and Darrow are great givers of freestanding speeches. Brian was primarily an orator. William Jen, uh, Clarence Darrow, in addition to be a trial lawyer, was also a great public speaker. He gave set speeches. And Darrow, apparently, as the speech went on, he leaned his head back and just let the word, closed his eyes and let the words flow over him. And he leaned over after it was over, just as it was ending. And because to him, oratory and speakers and people were the gods. And he hears this speech. And of course, it's hot, sweating. And he hears it. And he leans over to the person, to Scopes next to him and says, ah, it is a summer for the gods. Yeah. Yeah. Meaning the speech. Yeah. We as orators. It's it's like some from a Greek tragedy, right? This this the lawyers this, and I, I imagine some of your listeners, if you say your listeners are trial lawyers, some of them know where there's a amazing trial that they're involved in, where both sides are hitting on all cylinders, and it is. I've been in courtrooms like that when I practice law. It is like I mean, you know, it's how they must feel at a. At a at the Dodgers Giants baseball game, that last one that was so good to the end, it is like a summer for the gods, and that's how it becomes at one of these trials. And this is what they felt that day. So, Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. 
Tell them, tell them we sent you. Ultimately, the judge rules against uh, allowing scientific evidence. In. And then what I thought was interesting, and it, to me, it's so typical of a trial lawyer's frustration that sometimes, and, and Clarence Darrow got caught on this, uh, where he sort of makes a comment. I couldn't tell if it was under his breath, but he makes a comment about the judge uh, always ruling against the defense. And then the judge... Uh, the judge says something to the effect of, I hope you're not uh, meaning for that to reflect on the court. And Clarence Darrow says, well, your honor has the right to hope. And uh, and after that, the judge holds uh, Clarence Darrow in contempt. Um, it, you can see just sort of the frustration of a, of a trial lawyer uh, when, you know, even <laughs> though they're doing a great job, nothing seems to go their way. That's yeah. true. And he had to apologize the next day to get the contempt listed. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> Well, um, well, let, let's get to the uh, the climax, the real high point of the trial. And I guess, first of all, I want to talk about is how it how it happened is. So even though the, the judge has now ruled against, uh, you know, any scientific evidence and, and basically the defense is left with no evidence, uh, Darrow and the others come up with the idea uh, that they're going to put William Jennings Bryant on the stand uh, as a an expert on the Bible. Um and uh, and this becomes, you know, sort of, you know, stories are written about this, uh, this part of the trial. But how did Brian uh, allow himself to be put into this position or why would he agree to it, I guess, um, you know, to put himself up for cross-examination by, you know, as we've said, the greatest trial lawyer in the country? Vanity. Yeah. Right, Vanity. Right. How does, I mean, remember, we're talking about William Jennings Bryan. Um, if he was a great orator, a great speaker. Um, Darrow had actually been planning this. Um, it had become clear even before the trial began, just before the trial began, that the defense, that the prosecution was going to object to expert witness. And they thought that the judge would probably go along with it because technically it wasn't relevant. Technically, the only issue was did Darrow, did Brian teach um, evolution. I mean, you could argue that that was the case. And if you had a friendly judge, you're going to get that ruling. So Darrow had come up with the idea. I mean, remember, Darrow was the greatest, maybe the greatest legal strategist ever. And so he came up with the idea early on um, that, well, if we get closed out, if we can't put our experts in, we can try to bring up William Jennings Bryan as an expert because Brian did profess to be an expert on the Bible in the sense that among his other activities, he published a weekly, Brian Sunday School, it was called. He taught Sunday, he, like Jimmy Carter, taught teach at Sunday School down in Southern Georgia. Um, Brian then lived in, in uh, Miami um, and um, held a Sunday School, taught Sunday School on Sundays. And he published a weekly column all over the country called Brian Sunday School. And it was published on Saturday in newspapers all around the country, got Brian a little extra money. And it was his religious ideas. And so he was put, holding himself out as an expert on religion, even though he wasn't trained in the field. Um, and so they thought, Darrell thought, and he talked it over with the other lawyers. If Brian's got, Brian, what is the weakness of your opponent? You always got to think of that. Well, ego. Um, it's, it was his own weakness, um, and he knew that was Brian's weakness. So if I can, and they had been friends, you would notice how, how 
front. They had worked together against World War One. Brian Darrow had campaigned for Brian in for his campaigns for president. And so, so they've been friends. So if during the trial I continually just nitpick away, hammer away at his ignorance, make him just just continually litter continue attack and he can't really answer because he's not really participating in the trial he's just sitting there and so they constantly refer to him throughout the trial everyone especially uh Darrow refer to him as you know the ignoramus and the person who doesn't you know anything about this and just continually belittles the guy so you've got his you've got him feeling very defensive about this constant ridicule and then if the expert testimony is closed down, just wait to that last day when they think they're going to have closing arguments. And because you haven't tipped your hand that you're not going to give your defense closing argument. And then when you get up to give your defense closing argument, instead say, judge, we'd like to call one more witness if the prosecution doesn't object. Because we think people have a right to know about this statute. And we'd like to call a witness, an expert on the Bible, that even the prosecution can't object to. And the response comes back, says, well, we don't think there is such a person, but if you can name such a person and we don't object to him, <laughs> we'll let you do it. And so then they call William Jennings Bryan and the court and the judge are just stunned. And, and, and Tom Stewart immediately says, no, you can't call the opposing counsel. <laughs> but Bryan has been belittled through the whole thing. And Brian thinks he, Brian has this closing argument ready. Brian has given all these speeches against evolution. He figures he's going to get questions about evolution or about academic freedom or about teaching evolution or about parents or stuff like that. And so he figures, you know, even though he's not quick debate, he's not a debater. He's a stump speaker. He figures, well, I can take whatever questions and turn it back with a stump speech, um, parts of a stump speech. But of course, as every one of your lawyer listeners knows, you never ask a question <laughs> to a witness where the witness can give an answer that hurts you. Right. And of course, you haven't deposed this before, so you don't have a deposition to make sure they're what they're going to say. So what you're going to do is you're going to only ask questions that whatever Brian says can't hurt you. So you are never going to ask about evolution or about academic freedom or about schools because you know that he has a stump speech that he can turn. And so he, they call, they actually have Hayes get up and calls rather than, um, than Darrow because Darrow would be too obvious. And Hayes is a bit of a gentleman. So Hayes calls Brian to the stand. But then, of course, and he insists on taking the stand because he's going to defend his honor and he's going to defend his law because all the way through, they say, this isn't Tennessee's laws. This is Brian's law. This is Brian's stupid law. This is Brian's. And so Brian agrees on the condition that then he can um, bring up one of the uh, 
bring up Daryl. And they say, that's fine. You can bring up Daryl. And so Brian takes the stand and insists on taking it. Indeed, during the course of the two hour long examination, which becomes a crop because he quickly shows he's hostile. So the judge gives him authority to question him um, with leading questions as a hostile witness. Um, throughout that whole time, Stewart constantly, repeatedly objects and demands that this be stopped. And the judge looks over at Brian and Brian says, no, I insist that I can. <laughs> oh, and so the questions are always, they're the typical village atheist question that you can't answer. Well, Brian is, he knows he's got Brian trapped because Brian has to remember that final day because they thought it was going to be closing arguments and the judge is up for re-election, everybody wants to hear it. He moves the final day outside into the courthouse lawn where there is a bandstand. And they're up on this bandstand. And now the entire town, from the 200 people that held in the courtroom and evacuated the courtroom, 2,000 people, more than the population of the town, is spread across the, court, the lawn. Well, Brian has to figure out like any speaker, who's my audience? Is my audience the radio audience? Is my audience a national audience reading this? Or is my audience the people right out in front of me? And they're different audiences because you, you watch Brian's speeches before this on evolution. He would give one sort of speech if he was speaking at Harvard or University of Wisconsin or wherever else he went, Brown University. And he'd give a very different speech if he was speaking in a church because the audience is different. And so you couch it to one, you speak against evolution being you're attacking Rockefeller and the German militarist, and another when you're defending the Bible. You know, you do what works for your audience. But Brian can never, you can read his answers. And he can never figure out who his audience is. And that automatically, and, and Darrow, of course, has planned all this. He has rehearsed this. He has had some of the witnesses stand in like any good. He has had mock preparations right. where he has had people who know Brian stand in as Brian where he answers some questions. So he's prepared for this for two weeks. And so he's ready. And he, he the questions he asks are things like, I mean, what you'd expect says, you know, um, do you believe the world is created in six days within the last 10,000 years? Do you believe that that Jonah was actually swallowed by a whale and lived inside a whale for three years? Do you believe that God stopped the sun to make the day longer for Joshua? These typical village atheist questions that they're my favorite one, of course, is where did Cain get his wife? Right. Um, uh, which have been asked for a thousand years, and you cannot answer a good question. There's no good answer to it because where do you, where did King get his wife? I mean, you just don't know where he came. You can start of hypothesizing. How could you lengthen the day by stopping the sun unless you believe that the earth is at the center of the universe and the sun goes around? If you want to lengthen the day, you got to stop the earth from turning, not the sun. And so these are the questions that have been always asked. And so Brian, whatever answer he gives, um, like to um, to the where did Cain find his wife? In frustration, he says, I don't know. I leave the atheist to look for. Her. And do you believe the earth was created in in six days within the last 10,000? He says, no, because he had Brian on record on that. 
Brian had always said he believed that the days of creation were epics of geological time, because you got to explain the dinosaurs somehow. And so they have him on record. So he has to say the earth was, no, I, the, I don't, that's when he has his line that you quoted. I don't, I believe in the rock of ages, not the ages of rocks. Um, and by giving those answers, which he's forced to either admit his ignorance about where Cain got his wife, or if Jonah was in a whale for three days, or take a stand that he's documented on, if he's got a literalistic audience, like sitting before him, or the Seventh-day Adventists, they're going to be offended. But if he's speaking to a national audience of educated people, he's going to look like a dang fool. And so he's torn. And every question, there's no possible good answer. Whichever way he says it, he loses on some front. Indeed, the next day, the New York Times ran a editorial, lead editorial in the New York Times saying, we always knew that Brian had a defective brain cage, but we never knew it was entirely empty until yesterday. <laughs> oh, uh, the, um, the humiliation this heaped on this man, um, and there was no way that he could answer the question. So it was classic Clarence Darrow, yeah. knowing he had him every way. But Brian just was not expecting that to come. Yeah, which is amazing uh, considering the fact who he was up against. But I, I sort of have this vision of uh, of that scene in A Few Good Men when Tom Cruise is talking about putting Jack Nicholson on the stand, and he says, you know, I'm going to put him on the stand because I think he wants to say it. Um, mm -hmm. Is sort of that that you know, like he's going to put William Jennings Bryan on the stand because you know he wants to take the stand. Yeah. Um, but it was a uh, brilliant move. It was an oh, absolutely yeah. brilliant move. Mm -hmm. And of course that and Bryan. Darrow, excuse me, Darrow couldn't let on that it was coming at all. So even the famous um, reporter there um, from uh, Baltimore, who had been following the whole thing and probably the most the, famous lawyer at the event. H.L. Um, Mencken. H.L. Mencken yeah. had left because he thought it was all over and he didn't even get to watch it. But Darrow couldn't let on <laughs> of what he was going to do, because if they if the defense had gotten if the prosecution had gotten wise to it, of course, they would have kept Brian off the stand. But instead, he walked right into it. And again, I have thought for years about why it, it just down deep. It has to be vanity. Well, and, and it's really a great cross to read just from a from like I said, from a trial or standpoint, because, you know, he, the, he sort of starts off in sort of a slow, uh, you know, almost um, like an agreeable manner. Like he talks to Brian about how much he reads the Bible and how well he knows the Bible and, and that he believes in his literal interpretation, all things that Brian is going to say yes to. And then sort of leads him down this path of all of these things in the Bible that if you put a literal interpretation to it, sounds really I mean, uh, outlandish. It, it and can't be. If you, yeah. And if you, therefore, um, don't agree, if you say, I don't know if Joshua, uh, if Jonah was in the whale for three days, I just don't know. And I don't know where Cain got his wife. And I think the earth is, you know, I don't know how old the earth is. It could be hundreds of millions of years old. If As long as you say those, you can, as, as Arthur Garfield Hayes gets up to, to say, well, he's interpreting the Bible. Why can't we? All right. we're saying is we're saying God created man, but they used evolution. Evolution was the means of creation. Why can't? And the law doesn't let us teach it. If he can interpret the Bible, why can't we? And that's really a zinger. That really yeah. does nail him. And that's why learning from that 
increasingly creationists have moved back to a trying to profess that they literally believe everything in the Bible. But that's hard because we just read the Bible yourself. There's two creation stories. There's creation story in Genesis 1, where where humans are created last um, after the animals, and then the creation story in 2, where humans are created first. I mean, you have two different stories. Everybody knows that. And they're conflicting. So you can't literally believe both of them. But what do you do? And that's the sort of thing that Darrow was a master at raising. And I think, uh, Von, the, um, you know, one of the points when you know you have a witness just sort of like they're done is is when Brian says, I can't remember what the question was, but his quote is, I don't think about things I don't think about. (laughs) It's like you just took this master order and he's basically giving you gibberish. Yikes. Yeah. That was a, he asked him a question about ancient religions and he says, I've never thought about that. You haven't? thought about that it was it's totally relevant for all we're talking about it says well i don't think about things i don't think about yeah (laughs) well uh i mean so so uh even though that was one of the high points of trial ultimately the judge uh strikes brian's testimony and throws it out of the uh official record uh even though it's in the record of history um, and so at, at that point, uh, Darrow uh, basically says, uh, well, we have no more evidence. So we would like to just ask the uh, the jury to go ahead and convict him. And um, and uh, and they waive their closing argument. And uh, and as we said already, the, the jury, I think it, I think it was said the jury doesn't even go into like a jury room. They basically step out into the hall. They they huddle around for nine minutes uh, and then come back and they uh, give a, a guilty verdict. Um, it's too crowded to make it. They're back in the courtroom because yeah. it's a day later and it's too crowded for them to get through to the jury room. And so they huddle in the in the. In actually, it wasn't even the hallway. It was sort of in the passageway going back. They just huddled together um, because um, basically. Darrow has said, you know, based on what you've heard, you're going to have to convict my client. And then the Tom Stewart gets up and he says, um, yeah, what he's really saying is they want to take this on appeal and they want a conviction. And so it wasn't as if. You know, the jury was just doing what both sides wanted anyway. And so, right, they didn't even make it to the jury room. Wow. Um, and then so the interesting thing was that I, the so the normal uh, way things were done in Tennessee was that the jury was supposed to give the penalty. But I guess in that jurisdiction, in that county, um, it was it was uh, normal for the judge to go ahead and give a fine. And he had basically suggested giving the minimum fine, which would be one hundred dollars. And both sides agreed to allow the judge uh, to to give this minimum fine, which is you already said, uh, uh, William Jennings Bryan had already said he was willing to pay it. And I think the ACLU said they were willing to pay it. But that ultimately ends up being a big mistake for the ACLU and for Darrow. Yeah. What happens is that, yes, under Tennessee jurisprudence, the jury is supposed to impose the, the fine. But what the judge actually says is um, he tells the jury to go out and if you find him guilty, set the amount of the fine. But if you are satisfied with the minimum fine, 
then don't then you don't need to give me a figure and I will impose the minimum. So he's actually qualified that and said, oh, so in a way they are picking the minimum fine by not saying it. And um, when asked about it, because Darrow immediately says, well, you can't do that. And uh, the and the, and the defense, you know, doesn't want to mess up. And they say, no, this is the way we do it in liquor cases, because a jury doesn't for 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 making moonshine. A jury doesn't want to. It's the same. Remember, it's the same fine, mm-hmm. one hundred to five hundred dollars, uh, gross misdemeanor, same as a, a a a moonshining case back then in prohibition. Juries don't want to impose the fine on a on somebody for bootlegging, um, for making um, uh, you know, whiskey. And so this is the way we always do it. And I'm just proposing to do it exactly the same way. They are really doing a minimum fine, but they don't have to you know, say that. And so given that explanation, the prosecution, and the prosecution has never heard this either because Tom Stewart is, you know, the prosecutor, he's the attorney general from up in Nashville. Um, actually, he's for he's from a different town. He's not actually from Nashville, but he's from from um, another town in southern Tennessee. And he wonders about it, too. And so they have a little back and forth. And finally, they all agree that if that's the way you do it here, uh, it's OK. And so they do it. And then Nobody raises that question on appeal, um, but the the Supreme Court is looking for a way to get out of this case without overturning a popular law. Yeah, the the Tennessee Supreme Court, and, and I, I um, when this case was going up on appeal, um, the. Tennessee, like Georgia, or at least back then, uh, their Supreme Court justices are elected. Uh, so they uh, uh, wisely waited till after the election uh, to render their ruling. And um, and I think, it, it, Professor Larson, that the Scopes team took that as a good sign that they were waiting till after the election uh, because they thought they might overturn the, the statute. Uh, but they ultimately upheld the statute as being constitutional basically say it didn't uh, prevent you from teaching. It didn't teach. It didn't uh, force you to teach anything, I think is what they said. And then uh, but then they on this technicality, because the jury hadn't hadn't affixed the uh, the penalty, they overturned the conviction on that basis and then basically uh, encourage the uh, the state to drop the case, to dismiss the case. Right. It's a um, this was a. Uh, Everyone recognized this, that the Tennessee Supreme Court was responding to public opinion, that Brian had already died. They didn't want um, they didn't want to strike down his statute. Um, so three, two. Um, the two wanting to overturn the statute, the three said, well, they just as you said, on their own, nobody had raised, neither side had raised the issue that the judge improperly imposed the fine. And if they had actually read the clear transcript, they would see that really the judge wasn't, that he had given the jury, said, you, you impose this, but if you want me to give the lower one, just, you don't need to say, I'll just automatically do it. So in a way, they're still imposing the statute, but they use that as a way to uphold the statute while 
liberating scopes. And not only do they say, we direct you when they, remember, because you could retry scopes. Not only did they direct them not to bring this case again, they went on in their decision and said, and never, ever bring a case. No prosecutor in this state should ever bring a case under this statute again. That was in the in the decision. So so um, but they technically upheld the statute and they uh, they overturned Scopes's conviction. And that was and therefore the the defense could not appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a, you know, from a, a legal, you know, uh, it, the uh, Clarence Darrow, who was a great, uh, great lawyer, had had been outmaneuvered there. I mean, by the Supreme Court, where they basically took away their right to take it up to the U.S. Supreme Court and get this heard and make it into the true test case that they wanted. Well, well said. But I should add that no one ever hailed Clarence Darrow as an appellate lawyer. Right. <laughs> he was a trial lawyer. He yeah. never he was never very good at appellate cases. That was not his because he played on the emotion, the closing argument, the 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 witness, the the whole sense and feel. That was his gift. Yeah. And as all your lawyers, your uh, listeners will know, it's a very different skill being an appellate lawyer. I was mostly an appellate lawyer than a trial lawyer. Well, my yeah. brother's a trial lawyer. It's a different skill. And um, it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't Brian, it wasn't Darrow's skill. He did get outmaneuvered. Um, yeah. And so, uh, and, and so ultimately the law, I think, stays on the books until, is it the 50s or 60s when another case goes up to the Supreme Court, to the U.S. Supreme Court? And I think that was called Epperson versus Arkansas. And they basically uh, overturn a anti-evolutionary statute and mention the Tennessee law in that decision. Is that right? Well, it's a little more complicated than that, I hate to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're right about Epperson overturned. Um, after the Tennessee case decision was upheld, after the Scopes case, several other states passed copycat laws, including Arkansas. And it was that Arkansas law that was overturned by the Supreme Court in, I think it was in 1967. Uh, Interestingly, by a justice who wrote the opinion, Abe Fortas, who had grown up in Tennessee and had decided to become a lawyer because he was so inspired as a young boy by the Scopes case. Oh, wow. He was a Jewish, uh, a young Jewish boy um, who was always felt um, sort of oppressed by the religiosity of Tennessee, He'd grown up in Memphis. And um that's what inspired him to go into law. And so he loved the chance that he got to cure. And so therefore he mentioned the Scopes trial. But Tennessee actually, the year two years before, had repealed their statute. But it was interesting. The repeal was caused because of, a, of another Supreme Court case that had ruled that you had to have one man, one vote. That came out of Tennessee. And they had had an, an old, they had the old, um, districting, where their state legislature had their old lines based on counties. And so it was a very rural focused legislature. And because the Supreme Court ruled on how poorly Tennessee was violated the Republican clause of the Constitution by having these, these tiny counties with a legislator and a big counties with a legislature, they mandated one man, one vote. Um, and redistricting. And so Tennessee had redistricting, redistricted with a legislature that had many more 
people from the big counties like Davidson County. So Memphis and Knoxville and Nashville. And, and that new legislature then repealed a lot of laws that they viewed had grown out of the old rural focus of the legislature. And in the in their sweep of laws, they caught up the anti-evolution law. So it had actually been repealed by Tennessee uh, before Epperson, but then Epperson sort of confirmed that judgment uh, by overturning uh, Arkansas. And then with that went down, the other ones around the country went down as well. Right. Okay. Um, well, and, and you mentioned it briefly there uh, that this is something that I didn't know until I uh, you know was researching for this case and read your book. But uh, so five days after the trial, while he's still in Dayton, Tennessee, uh, William Jennings Bryan uh, dies in his sleep. He does. He um, we don't know why um, he was a diabetic. Uh, he was overweight. The trial was very stressful. And but it was five days later. It wasn't that night. The reason why he was still in town was his plan all along had been that as soon as the trial ended, he thought he was going to end with this in this amazing closing argument. And remember, his source of income is being a public speaker. And he had already planned to make a nationwide uh, train speaking trip all around the country. He'd already booked the venues. And he was going to give. You've heard about the Scopes trial. Now come and hear Brian give the closing argument again. Yeah. And but he needed to have the closing argument printed up. And so a printing company, one of the local published of a local paper in Chattanooga, was printing it as a as a book, sort of a booklet book that he could sell because, of course, you make extra money with the concessions. And the concession is a copy of the of the closing argument. And so what he does is he practices, he gives the speech three times in small towns in Tennessee, um, near Dayton, not actually in Dayton, but in little towns nearby. And he's waiting for the, and he's read over the um, galley proofs of his speech, you know, cause he has to print it, have to look over the galleys, have to send it back. And so he looked over the galleys and then he goes to church on Sunday and uh, which is five days later. And then he lays down to take a nap before lunch or Sunday dinner. And his wife comes in and he's dead. It looks like he peacefully died in his sleep. Now, it did lead to some remarks. Yeah. Um, um, famously, um, um, uh, Darrow said um, that God got mad. Darrow was still in town, too. He had been hiking up in the Smoky Mountains. And uh, reporters caught him up there and told him Brian died. And he said, well, God was probably throwing down a lightning bolt to kill me and myth and hit Brian instead, right. <laughs> which, of course, is a triple layer of a skew. Right, and, right. Um, uh, the, um, and um, similar remarks were made. Oh, no, no, I told you wrong. I stand corrected. That was the line that um, that H.L. Um, uh, Mencken said. Um, what Darrow said when he heard is um, they said, do you think you killed him by your cross-examination? He said, I didn't kill him. He died of a busted belly because he was so overweight. <laughs> and so um, it, that was him. But he, he doesn't die in. Um, we've got to remember that even though he was widely ridiculed for his um, appearance on the witness stand, remember, he had won the case. 
Scopes was convicted. And the media outlets, especially in the South, but some in other places, who were sympathetic to his side, um, and the religious press, which is when there was a big religious press, they, they, they said, no, he is the defender. He's the defender of the faith. He, 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 he got up there. And who wouldn't look like a fool if being cross-examined by Satan himself, Clarence Darrow? And so he didn't, what he had actually done is if you look at all the opinion articles the day after the judgment there, and I looked at hundreds of them because every paper, this was front page news. So it's a lead editorial in every paper the day after, not after the day after the examination of Darrow and Brian and Darrow, but rather the day after the judgment, Nobody says it's decisive. Nobody says that Darrow has decisively won. Nobody says that Brian has decisively won. What they say is, wow, this, uh, this is bigger than we ever thought. This, because both sides had recruited their own legions, and they had turned this into a sort of a secondary issue, into the biggest cultural issue of the day. It's sort of like what happened to abortion in my lifetime. You know, you go back to before Ronald Reagan, abortion was a secondary issue. Catholic Church was opposed to it, but the Baptist Church wasn't. It wasn't a big cultural divide, but it became a huge issue. It was to remain a cultural, it's become a cultural divide. And this trial, the publicity it got, had transformed the age of the earth and and the human evolution into the biggest cultural issue of the day. And so every reporter said, this is huge. And so Brian dies a hero to his own people. Right. And so his body is carried in a special train to Washington, D.C. for a state funeral, for a burial in, um, of all places, here is a militant, is an anti-militarist, a quasi-pacifist who campaigned against the um, both the Spanish-American War and the World War one, and he's buried in Arlington National Cemetery. The train as it's going to Washington can only go like five miles an hour because the, the train track is lined with people holding up their children to see the passing body. It stops in every town and people file through. And when after the funeral, his body is carried, the pallbearers, every single pallbearer is a sitting United States senator. Who carries him forward? So he dies a hero to many. Yeah. And the Scopes trial helped actually, because he was a little bit of a faded star by that time. It puts him back in the national limelight. And um, you know, many people run forward to carry up the take up the cross he's dropped, and anti-evolutionism actually increases after his death, and more states pass these law after his death than before. Yeah, and we should also mention that uh, in Dayton they started the William Jennings Bryan uh, College, right? The, uh, the I think it's known as Bryan University. It started as William Jennings Bryan. Uh, Memorial University, they raise funds. Remember, it's a dying town and they build, a, they try to build a full-scale university where they can teach a religious view of life, sort of anticipating the growth of Christian colleges. There really weren't that many before. Now they're all over. Um, Christian colleges, there's a major movement. Think of something like Baylor. 
Um, and that was their goal. They raised enough money to sort of build a building or two. It has struggled at becoming Bryan College. It's a very small school. It's, you know, it doesn't have quite the location you'd want. But yes, it still survives. And it, in that sense, plus the summer festival, it helps. I mean, these people who weren't all wrong, they wanted a publicity stunt to put their town on the map. Right. And they got one. Well, uh, I mean, this has just been a great conversation. I mean, uh, just a fantastic uh, discussion of um, of uh, Tennessee versus Scopes, otherwise known as the Scopes Monkey Trial. Uh, Dr. Larson, is there anything else that we need to tell our listeners about this trial that we haven't gotten a chance to discuss? No, you've done an amazing job. I just simply remind everyone, this shows why law makes a difference in America. Yeah. You wouldn't have a trial like this in France. You would, the legal systems of other countries don't. Um, we end up deciding our cultural issues, whether it's abortion or gun laws or this in our courtroom. And our courtroom, because of the ability of our lawyers and because of the way we work on an adversarial system, which they don't in a civil law country, um, our courts, our lawyers become chief champions on both sides, just as they are now on abortion or something or gun laws. And that's one of the things that Scope Trial tells us. That's one thing that you're, you're, um, if your listeners are lawyers, even if they're not, they should know about the law. We, as lawyers, have a crucial place in American democracy and, and dealing with these issues that simply doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. I want to remind everybody that we've been talking with uh, Professor Edward J. Larson, uh, uh, the Hugh and Hazel Darling Chair in Law and um, a professor of history at Pepperdine University. And uh, if you want to learn more about uh, the Scopes Monkey Trial, then uh, I, I would highly encourage going to pick up uh, Professor Larson's book, Summer for the Gods, The Scopes Trial and America's Continuing Debate Over Science and Religion. Um, it's a great read, really gives the, uh, uh, just a great uh, history of not only the trial itself, but where the country was and then where the country went uh, after the trial. But um, Professor Larson, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me on and you, both of you to your wonderful questions. I hope someday when I'm next down in Savannah or if you come up to the uh, Georgia game in two weeks, yeah. we can get together. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. 
Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.